Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Melissa Gudo from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome back, Glenn. I want to start off this episode, I went back and looked through our list of patrons on patreon.com. I wanted just to give a special thank you call out to to a number of them that have you know, been around for a while. So uh, some, some of our you know, most consistent or longest running or you know, that kind of thing, uh, patrons. So big thanks to Adam, Brian, Dustin, Jack, Jennifer, Jessica, Joe, Ken, Kim, Megan, Mel, Natalie, and Victor. Wow, that is quite a list. Yeah, that's that's really nice. Thank, thanks, guys, and thanks, Eric, for calling attention to longtime supporters. We, we keep looking for for ways to improve, and uh, and, and the uh, you know the funds that our listeners send to us uh, through Patreon uh, really do help with that. So, and, and I run into people, I'm sure as you do, all the time yeah. who talk about listening to the show, that there was an episode, they were preparing for something for court, they went back, they listened to certain episodes, they use it, you know, we know for training, but I, I really like the idea of even really experienced examiners using it as a way to refresh themselves on certain topics before having to testify or give a presentation or something like that. It's, 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 it's nice to hear that people use it as a resource. Yep. And, and you know what? <laughs> <laughs> on occasion now i i've heard you even mention something like that of of going back and listening to an episode that uh i mean we're we're past we're well past 200 now so i guess it's it's not a surprise but i've heard a couple times you've mentioned like i don't even remember doing <laughs> interviewing that person but there it is we have it <laughs> no that that is true there there are certain things i have forgotten if we've talked about or not or sometimes off the air you and i will talk about stuff we'll continue to talk about things maybe for upcoming episodes yeah, and then i yeah. have this memory that we've already talked about it and turns out we haven't so uh, even the the hosts don't know what are in half of those episodes <laughs> or not which is why we do need to move forward with trying to index those episodes and i've got yes. got some ideas for this year as well we we might have to look into a suggestion from Carrie Hall, which is getting an intern for the show. Hey, that's not a bad idea. I, I even actually uh, the other week looked into how much it would cost to hire someone, pay someone to edit the episodes together as uh, schedules get busier and busier. And uh, we're not quite at the Patreon contributions <laughs> yet to uh, to allow for that. But well, heck, you know, keep them rolling in, and, and maybe we'll get there here someday soon. You uh, you came back from a trip here recently, is that right? Yep, that's right. That last week, I was invited to this DNA panel. I shouldn't say panel. I guess it's a committee. And I, I did ask beforehand what can be talked about. In fact, there are some rules about what can and can't be talked about. So I'll, I'll adhere to those and hopefully won't get in trouble and get booted off before it even starts. <laughs> It is being funded by NIJ and sponsored by NIST, and this is very similar to what was done in 2010 or so when NIST and NIJ got together to put together a group of fingerprint examiners, uh, practitioners, as well as psychologists, attorneys, um, uh, human factors experts, and put everyone in a room together to talk about latent print examinations and human factors. 
And I remember, and for over two years, we met, I think, eight times. And at the end of the, the, the two years, a report was written, and that's the Human Factors Report that came out in 2012 or so. And this is something I don't know if I've said before, but I mentioned it at the meeting. They asked me to talk a little bit about my previous experience. And I have to say that I've been involved in many different committees, many different projects, and different reports and different kinds of things like that. And the human factors is one that I'm actually really proud of. I I don't think it gets enough love and recognition. I, I don't even know that I, mean, I talk to people sometimes about it and have you read it? Well, I've glanced through it. Um, have you ever, you know, considered adopting the recommendations? Well, you know, maybe they're just recommendations. I, I don't think that people really look at it as a resource, and I don't know anyone who's really actively said, I am going to adopt these things. These are really important recommendations. I want to make sure that our agency is doing them. I actually have attempted to adopt all that I could in my organization. And I actually really like the report. I think that it has some great recommendations in it go that go right to the heart of certain critical matters. For example, I mean, they go farther than Sweetfast went at that time. And But one of the things I mentioned is looking at what's coming out of OSAC, OSAC is going further than the Human Factors Report did. Uh, we, in, you know, back in, the, in that day, we fought to get a lot of those recommendations through. There was a lot of arguing about them, and that, you know, what came out was the compromise. But uh, in my opinion, looking at what's coming out from OSAC, we didn't go far enough. Uh, but at, in ten years ago, they were really controversial. And one of the one of the recommendations, for example, is you must document the features that you use to reach your conclusion. You can't just have a little checklist going. Yes, there's distortion. Yes, there's level one. Yes, there's level two. Yes, there's level three. And that's it. Done. You know, I've documented my exam. That, that doesn't. That's not the spirit of the documentation that shows the basis for your. Your reasoning and conclusions. Yep. So it, you know, it takes a hard line on some of those things. Eric, I, I assume you've read it. Are you familiar with a with with it? Yeah, and and you know, I was actually going to say that. So first off, speaking to the examiners out there that that may be like, eh, human factors. Uh, There's some stuff in there I didn't like. As you kind of go through your career, maybe revisit it, especially if you're doing things like expanding the unit or getting a new building because some of the some of the stuff in there may be helpful to you in getting the right equipment the right uh working space you know bigger uh, bigger office area you know just these other things that just kind of go to quality of life for you know your employment uh that are that are covered in there as well it's not just all like documentation stuff no, I 100% agree with you. That that's, that's a good point. It's something that maybe supervisors, you know, pe- people that might have read it 10 years ago weren't su- in supervisory positions or, exactly. or in trainer positions. And there's lots of things about training and supervising as well because it's a systems-based approach. It's not just looking at bias and error at the examiner level. In fact, that is one of the key fundamental things of human factors is a systems-based approach. When errors happen – how did management fail? How did the system fail? How did the environment fail? How did all these other things allow for an error to happen? And and that entire report talks about those sorts of things and whether or not they're violations, you know, willful disregard for a rule or standard or an error and how errors and violations occur given cultures and resources and all these other different things that come up. It's 
I, I actually am very proud of the report and find it to be a very useful resource, but I think it just doesn't get its love. But getting into documentation, like like you described, the man, the one of my pet peeves about our discipline is the the documentation forms that have checkboxes for level one, two, and three. Yeah, I'm with you. That is the most useless thing to do. That. Uh, I imagine that an identifiable latent print had level one, level two, and level three present. Are really? Sh- or just level one and level two? <laughs> like that would be the only ever difference I've ever seen. Is sometimes it's one and two, sometimes it's one, two, and three. Oh wow! If you're not going to document where the features are and which features are being used, right. don't even bother with the checkbox of saying yes. There's level one and level two. It's it's just pointless. Right. And like you're saying, you know, as OSAC is looking to go even further, and as documentation standards, you know, keep going through the system, I continually push for at a minimum you must like physically indicate and mark somehow which minutia are the basis for your id we can talk from there about other documentation but that's at least the minimum that should be required uh, for documentation of an id sure and it could be manually or automated using an aphis or lots of other tools available as well but i i'm with you it's it's the it's the minimum starting point yep from aphis system autoencoded through photoshop with dots to you know printouts and markers or or holes in paper Looking at you, FBI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In any case, yeah, uh, yeah. no, it's it's. I'm 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 uh, anxious to see what is going to be coming out for um, uh, from that uh, working group. Probably not for a number a, a length of time before something comes out. Is that because those usually take a while, right? Yeah, so yeah, we're going to meet probably eight times over the next two years. So they anticipate the report to be done in probably about three years or so. Uh, two and a half to three years. Uh, obviously, it'll be on DNA. And uh, a few things I learned, too, is that it's not going to cover mitochondrial DNA. It'll just be nuclear autosomal DNA and uh, not really cover databasing issues as well. So it'll be sort of okay. focused on that. Now, here's one of the – here's a couple of things I did want to share. And we'll probably talk in other episodes generically about this. So we might even get into a little DNA series and bring on some guests who, who can, we can talk about that. More depth, but yeah, yeah. You, you know the process map that we talked about. How many pages was that, Eric? The the OSAC process map. Was it eight? Something like that. Um, I did want. I don't think I mentioned, but after we talked about it, it had a revision. So it has a, a December 2019 revision now. That was that was after the ver- the November version that we talked about. Okay. Not very different. Just I think an organizational kind of thing. I even heard it brought up in uh, one of the latest uh, OSAC fr- uh, Friction Ridge Subcommittee meetings, talking about it being a living document that receives yeah. regular updates. Yep, yep. And, and then I'll get to that in a second. So, but we'll agree on eight pages, right? Sure. Okay. No processing, though, as a part of it. And if we made processing a part of that reasonably, we might add another four pages or so, uh, thinking yeah. like yeah. the home office kind of processing sort right. of decisions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there is a DNA one, and they the a DNA OSAC group, a joint. I think it, I think it was joint. I want to say NIST NIJ OSAC. I think together they had asked the OSAC subcommittee to put this together and get the personnel and everything, and they put together a DNA process map. And it is. You want to guess how many pages? Uh, Twenty. Forty-six, my friend. Whoo. 
46 pages, and that did not include mitochondrial DNA or databasing. Well, you know what? I I hope that that makes you stop complaining about the detail (laughs) that the latent print one went into. I I did think about that, that (laughs) anyone complaining about the eight pages in latent prints, well, your DNA counterparts have 46-page process. That is a living document they plan to update and all those same things you just mentioned. So that was one of the first things that I learned, and, and this was a common thread over the next couple of days. I And I'm saying this and mea culpa, saying this out loud and confessing this. I always sort of looked at DNA as a little bit of, oh, okay, so it's kind of like you take a chemist and you put them in a biological situation. They swab some stuff. They make some choice about where the swab based on presumptive testing. They throw the swabs in this in this thing. They extract the DNA. They throw it on the instrument. They get some output and then – either they themselves or hand it off to someone who will do the interpretation of what these peaks mean and the statistics behind them. They have to make a few assumptions, but they lay them out and then run some stats and there you go. There's a couple steps that there's like a quant and anyway, there's a couple of things you missed in there just right away, but go ahead. No, you're right. There can be a, a quant step. They don't always have to, but yes, there can be a quant step in there and they can try to specify and identify the body fluid and a few other little things that can come in. Right, there. right. Here's what I, I realized though. It is much more complex than I ever had any idea. There are some real complexities to the interpretation of it. And I was shocked at how many decision points are along the way. An amazing, many orders more than our decision points. There were a lot of decision points. And and a lot of it's it's left to the analyst. Sometimes there might be agency policy. Sometimes it's right. dictated by the instrument's validation and sensitivity. But even how that's decided, there was lots of I. There's all this, and then I know we've talked about before the hidden subjectivity. But beyond that, I was just amazed at how much information the DNA analyst has to know to correctly interpret. Uh, even even simple, like what's considered a simple, even single or you know two donor, where you've got the what appears to be the victim and a potential, let's say, you know, rapist. I right. even in there, even in what's considered simple, there's a lot. There's still more interpretation than I would have guessed going on, and still potential for error and the number of things. It was really, I, I was very impressed. With how technical it is. Now, I don't know that every DNA analyst knows all that, and I don't know that they, have, you know, it was clear that there's a lot of variability in their practice. That every, you know, even in the room, there was just just variability in how they apply certain things, what their instruments are, how they validated them, and so on. But it, it, it was very eye-opening, and that it was a, a great experience. And I'm looking forward to being a part of this group and learning a lot more about DNA. I thought I'd be able to pick this up pretty quickly, but. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is going to take me a, a, at least a good year of reading and trying to understand, especially looking at the complex mixtures. Oh, right, ma- right. man, that is – it is very complex. What the, the initial, my initial thing that comes to mind is that it, it, it really kind of calls into question even more so the, the proficiency testing – that uh, Brandon Max talked about uh, uh. when you know he and his colleagues passed the uh, the DNA PT. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could see it as he described it being such a simple scenario, basically a single you know profile. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see that. It, it's clear that when you get into the mixtures, I mean, even the two and three person mixtures 
get pretty complicated, and especially if there's any degradation, any loss of signal or sample, and then all these other things you have to ask yourself, could this be going on? Could this be going on? Could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be? And suddenly it opens up a huge bag of possibilities that you have to effectively eliminate or at least walk through, okay, it can't be this because of that. Are you, are you talking about are you talking about like drop out and stutter and drop in and that kind of stuff? Exactly. Effectively working through their potential distortions. But even right. when it looks pretty clean, they still have to consider different possibilities as well. Could there be okay. something hiding there? Could it be this? Could it be that? And it's just I I was impressed with the level of complexity and uh, have a newfound respect for for DNA analysts, especially at the interpretation level. Yeah, definitely looking forward to hearing more about that uh, as we go through. It's about time to move into the main topic for for this week, right? Yes, uh, yes, all all ready for that. To kind of close out our our little series on activity level, uh, and especially since a paper came out, you know, hit the uh, uh, even bigger news sources uh, uh, last month in January uh, about uh, determining the age of latent prints. We thought we'd kind of close out with a couple articles that. Uh, looked into you know how to do that and some of the you know ways you may try to determine the age other than just you know looking at it and guessing. Uh, so we have a couple of papers here, one from a few years ago and one here, like I said, just came out last month. And some of the issues that even they are encountering uh, in uh, determining uh, latent print age. Yeah, in the past episodes, I think I think we've said it over and over and over, and we're really clear. We kept using the phrase, and I, I know I just kept saying it, you can't make any sort of determination about the age based on a visual examination alone. So as you're referring to, well, what if we were to rely on something besides visual examination? What about some sort of instrumental right. technique? And over the last um, decade or so, uh, there have been some f- uh, breakthroughs and some promising uh, adventures into what are some of the components of latent print residue that could be targeted in order to uh, – and use an instrument to measure to, in order to determine and try to, if you will, back extrapolate uh, how old the latent print may be. Now, one of the things that any technique – and this is what – it's sort of the underlying theory behind this. It can't just be – how much of something is present. For example, let's say that we want to you know, look at some oleic acid or something that's a, a component of residue. It can't just be quantifying how much oleic acid is present because if you attempt to do that and go, well, we have a little bit of oleic acid here and normally a, a fingerprint residue has, let's say, 10 micrograms of it and we've got one microgram, so clearly it's degraded. The problem with that thinking is that you don't know how much you started off with. Perhaps you started off with one microgram of oleic acid. So it can't just be quantifying how much of something is present. You need need some markers, and and really what you want to look for is breakdown of something. You want to look for something that's not normally in fresh residue, but something that appears in old residue from the breakdown of something. So you start with a starting product, and as it oxidizes and begins to break down, then its amount diminishes, 
and then these breakdown products begin to increase. This is kind of a concept you find in toxicology where the parent molecule from some drug is, isn't you know, is, you might find in the urine right away, but as it begins to break down over a couple of days or so, you'll find all the breakdown products and none of the parent ions. So this this concept of ratio is what's really key. And, and then that's what these researchers are looking at from a residue standpoint. Yeah, as time goes by, bigger compounds break into smaller compounds, you know, things become oxidated. It, it, there's, there's, there's a trend in how the chemicals progress through uh, different changes, and measuring ratios might be a way to move forward with this. And you know, I wanted to, to go back real quick to a thing you said: you can't just do it by visual examination. And, and I, I totally agree. But if you're out there saying, "Well, yeah, sure, I can. I, I, I know how to do that. I can look at a print and determine its age." more or less uh, by by how it looks or even I can at least say whether or not it's you know older or younger than a year fine just prove it you know set up some sort of test blind test where you can you know do that and demonstrate to everyone that that this is possible and that you're accurate at at it and if you are that's great <laughs> I want to learn how to do that too um, but without but just saying that you can do it without actually having anything behind that, that that's the big problem here. And then, so what we're going to go through here in these papers, you know, they're looking at, uh, well, in the past, I've seen other papers that look at uh, squalene, cholesterol, other fatty acids. Let's see, the new one looks at triacylglycerols. There's lots of different chemicals and there's problems in the the, the approaches that they're using here. So, you know, that's kind of the way that to do it. You, hey, this might work, test it out. You know, we kind of look at it and say, okay, it's got problems here, here, and here. Maybe something better comes out. Maybe eventually this is something that we can do. Well, why don't we start off with the first paper, which is by Giro. That's G-I-R-O-D. Uh, first name is Aline and a couple of other authors. I met Aline a f oh, probably 10 years ago now <laughs> in Switzerland, and she, she's great. She's working for the Austrian, like, national police right now with their crime scene folks so she's over in vienna austria right now and this was part of her research work when she was at the university of lausanne i think it was for her masters i, I don't think it was phd but i think it was masters she does have a phd uh, so this probably was her phd work so sorry aline dr giro sorry <laughs> Okay. The name of the paper was Aging of Target Lipid Parameters in Finger Mark Residue Using GCMS, and it was published in Science and Justice in 2016 or so. And like you said, Eric, it, it actually looks at the oxidation of lipids, and I think they focused on a few key ones, and uh, typically – uh, squalene is this waxy carbon substance that you'll find. It really is very similar to wax, and it's uh, squalene and some squal squalene derivatives. Uh, and the other one was isopropyl dodecanoate. 
So a large fatty acid thing. So, right. And these are compounds that are found in residue, especially oily residue. Uh, so if you're touching your forehead, which that was one of the things about this is that the, the, the I think they had five donors in the study. So five different people placing the marks down yep. and, and they char- it's, it's called charging. So they charge the finger by rubbing their forehead. If, if you've ever done your little experiments in your lab and you rub your forehead beforehand, that's called charging in the, in the detection literature, you're setting yourself up for finding finger marks. So they would charge them up with oils and such from your forehead. Now, this technique might be very different if you don't have those kinds of things in your residue. So I mean, there's a little limitation right there. Meaning that, it, you know, in real life, you know, not every latent print is left immediately after someone touches their forehead. Exactly. So... You know, in applying this to real life, there there's a bit you know bit unclear into exactly how it translates. So that said, they they had these people put down different marks under different conditions, and the first thing they did is analyze all these different variables and factors. And I think you probably want to talk more about that. So I'll, I'll leave that aside for a second. Uh, they they do a, a big analysis of this, and, and they use the, all these fancy statistical programs called PCA. This is Principal Component Analysis. This is where you I'm, – I'm probably butchering this. You, you run a bunch of data. You put all your data in a space, and then you look for – these vectors that show some sort of component, uh, 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 some sort of principal variable up that you can model around it. And you have to run them multiple different ways and look at static variables and dynamic variables, and you try to figure out which variables matter or so. And so they run a bunch of data and then run a big statistical analysis and go, okay, these factors matter more, these factors matter less, these ones don't seem to have any impact at all on anything. And it's a way to figure out what matters and what doesn't, so to speak. And then they go through their aging, and then they they realize that based on their PCA analysis, there are basically two broad categories, either less than 10 days for aging or 10 days up to a month. I think they had about 30-some days was was their max. So they tried to categorize the eight different finger marks into less than 10 days or more than 10 days and did it blindly. And they ended up getting five out of eight correct. Mm, okay, uh, <laughs> slight, slightly better than the coin toss, slightly. Right. Uh, and but they there was some logic to it. For example, the ones that they misclassified were ones that were stored in the dark, and they realized that storing things in the dark and kind of sealing it from airflow, even though they were older marks, they looked younger, so to speak. In other words, they hadn't degraded as much. And then the the other one they got wrong had been kept by an open window in an open box with air flowing over it. And so it had basically scored off their chart. So when things were subjected to lots of light and air and environmental conditions, it aged faster. And when it was uh, in a uh, dark drawer, it aged slower. So right away they realized, yeah, those two things matter. And everything else in the middle, they were okay at classifying. The the parts that that you know, I went to immediately, like I've said before on the show, are the pictures because the <laughs> the the graphs are always my favorite part of these papers. It, what really jumps out at you at, at looking in here is how other variables become overwhelming compared to the age of the print. 
Uh, so he's looking at figure one. They've circled out the different, you know, distinct groups that are fa- fairly easy to, to recognize as, yep, there's really three kind of, you know, there's dots that kind of fit into three different blobs. But those blobs are donors A and B in kind of one group, donor C and donor D in separate ones. So those in three different circles, you can distinguish kind of between the donor uh, with with this 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 technique that they tested, but not the age of the print. Mm-hmm. So there's um, essentially what you then have to do, and the next study we'll talk about here actually applied that, is you have to establish what's normal for a specific person before really trying to get accurate on how old the print is. Yeah, I put it another way, there was sort of more variability and more influence from the donor than the actual aging of the finger mark. So they saw the similar kind of thing when they kind of switched the graph to then uh, figure three, looking at uh, the surface. Uh, Glass versus paper had, had, again, different groupings. Where you couldn't, you could distinguish between those two, but not the the age of the print in in kind of that graph space. And uh, you saw the same thing with just apply, uh, just taking the information directly from the surface where the latent print was left versus, uh, and with no processing versus the surface after powder had been applied. Uh, and, and it kind of continued that way. So towards the end, though, the paper, you start getting into these graphs that show that there there are different groupings that you can see. Uh, they looked at how heavy the, the deposition pressure was. And there is a difference there between greater than or less than eight days. And then I think you were talking about the 10 days. And that was looking in the, in the graph space of whether the prints were kept in light or dark conditions. Uh, there was still you could see a difference in the in the number of days that uh, the print was left out. So what what they're showing here is that the the pressure you couldn't really distinguish between the different pressures, but when you kind of looked at the pressure component in in this graph space, that you could see a difference in the number of days and not the difference in the pressure. And this is Figure Ten. Okay. So what you can see, like the the blue, black, and red dots are all kind of mixed up. They're not separated out like uh, the other graphs uh, have uh, different components separated out. The blue, black, and red being 100, 500, and 1,000 grams of pressure uh, onto the, the surface. Yes. But you do see a difference in the grouping of greater than and less than eight days. Now, I just kind of initial glance at that, though, one of the concerns I kind of, as I was reading through this, was you don't see like a trend go, as you go from like zero to 30 uh, days or 27, 29, I think is the highest one here. Um, it's just kind of grouped here and grouped there. Uh, and you saw this, you see the same thing in uh, figure 13. You, there's a difference in the number of days and the same thing in figure uh, 16. You see a difference in the number of days, like bigger than 10, less than 10, but there's not like a trend, like as you go across from, you know, zero to three to seven to 10 to 14, uh, it's just kind of blobbed separate. So uh, that's just some kind of, and maybe that'll, with more data, that'll kind of, you know, pan out, Mm. but I would expect to see, you know, more of a, a gradual move through that space instead of just you know, separating out into these two groups. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I I'll have to go back and take another look at that in more detail. But I I, I hear what you're saying, and yeah, it, it makes sense the way you're explaining it. I, I thought this paper was was really great in in kind of taking the next step forward because again, this is based on other research that's been been done before, building on that. But taking a step forward in in isolating out what in a latent print do we just can we just not know right like deposition pressure and, and in some circumstances the person what can we know and how does might that then progress into giving us some information and you know it was really clear in talking about a, a lot of these other variables are going to overpower uh the actual age determination that the thing that we're trying to look for yeah i that that's a, a really great takeaway that there's this potential there. There's this thing that might be useful, but in the real world, it will f- likely fall apart pretty quickly because you can't control for any of these other things that the researchers are finding m- sort of have more impact than the actual aging. If different people give different results, even if we have them all just touch their forehead and p- touch a you know, piece of glass – under those very control conditions, it seems like it's going to be even more difficult applying to the real world when you have a gun or a dirty window or you know, some sort of corrugated metal or you know these these very messy scenarios where and also the print maybe left mostly in eccrine sweat instead of uh, uh, sebaceous oils. Yeah, I, I I know it's it's a very complicated process, and even under the most ideal conditions, while again some of these studies are showing there there's something here, there's some potential to this. Yeah. Obviously, there is degradation. But to you know, it's it's like you said, dealing with the complications of the real world. That that will be the real proof. All right. So then let's switch over to the brand new paper that just came out last month, and that's determining fingerprint age with mass spectrometry imaging versus ozonolysis of triacylglycerols by Paige Henners, Madison Thomas, and Young Jin Lee. So this is you know very similar, but this is very much looking specifically at triacylglycerols. Or TGs for short. Or TGs for short. And there's 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 a specific TG that did you notice, Glenn? I thought you you would it would stand out to you the the one uh oleol two three dipalmatoil glycerol or OPP. <laughs> I no, I missed that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I was not down with it. You were not down with it. Okay, okay. You know me. <laughs> Overall, again, just like the last one, they saw that the these triacylglycerols will decrease over time from ozonolysis, and these the unsaturated molecules will increase over time, just with just how this how just the aging process of chemicals work, and. The, the the first thing I saw, even in the, you know, the, when the abstract was published online, was that the, tracking this degradation proved to be, quote, relatively reproducible. So <laughs> put, putting, that's, that's, a, that's kind of carefully worded, and especially putting something that carefully worded in the abstract, maybe go, hmm, let's, let's read more detail here exactly how relatively reproducible things are then now going to the figure one here it really does show a very nice uh move uh and they've got what's what was the maldi uh mass spectra 
it's very precise measurements, you know, of the different compounds in the residue here. And you see, you know, basically over time, big molecules breaking into smaller ones, the, the mass of these things changing. And uh, from fresh to three days to seven days, there's a significant difference in the amount of these different compounds. Yes. And, and the profiles that they show for fresh and, and aged seem pretty predominant. I mean, you know, they're, the, the spectra in figure one are really nice. And, and MALDI is actually an instrument I really like. It's a nice soft ionization process, and it's really good for large mass molecules. In fact, it's the instrument that Simona used, uh, Simona Francesi, in, the, in one of the papers we discussed probably a year or two ago uh, in trying to prove that something is human blood. Oh, okay. Uh, and then in figure two, you know, you, it actually images where you see these molecules, which is really cool. Yeah. So you actually see ridge detail made up of specific compounds. And as you see it decreasing over time or increasing over time for, you know, the smaller ones that, that are the degradation products. Yeah, and this is a real common thing going on in Europe, too, right now. In fact, again, this is similar to what Simona was doing. Instead of, of throwing, uh, you know, metal black on a surface, uh, she was using imaging. to Once she could detect human blood, she could then do this, scanning it for blood molecules and then image it. So she could scan a surface, and wherever she could detect human blood, would put a little pixel, and then you could just keep doing this and basically create an image of the finger mark based on being able to detect the compound you're looking for you're creating you're you're creating an image of it based on what you can detect on the surface this is being used even with other contaminants you might find in fingerprint residue like uh, drugs and caffeine and nicotine and stuff i remember seeing a, a poster presentation on on this concept looking for explosive residue yeah um and you know if, if you see, see explosive residue basically in the shape of a fingerprint but not on the background then you know you can be reasonably certain that the that residue was on the person's finger uh when as it was being left behind so yes very cool stuff uh, glenn i just want to direct your attention to figure three where you've got the the fresh OPP versus the aged OPP. <laughs> I would be the aged o- OPP. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, everybody listening. I just I just know Glenn would get a kick out of that. So, so uh, here again, one of the the and they mention it. Uh, you know, the the authors mention it. One of the main um, limitations here is that the the degradation rate is different between individuals. So you would need to to you know figure out what an individual's degradation rate is from you know these chemicals that are coming off of their finger in order to get an accurate uh, age estimation of the latent. They say, for example, a value near one uh, would indicate a one day old print for person number one, but that would be a three to five day old print for person number two. You know, I I don't recall they they don't say why in the paper, right? Uh, they actually they, they they make a um, you know an educated guess here, or they 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 do provide an answer there in conclusions. They say that the uh, differences in the rate of degradation in individuals was attributed to differences in the abundance of unsaturated lipids in the fingerprint. Mm, interesting. Um, okay, 
Yeah, I, I wondered if it didn't have something to do with something that they couldn't detect. Like, you know, there's all this research into people's microbes and the different bacteria yeah. that they have. And, you know, could there be a you know bacteria that feeds off of that f- at a faster rate than you know, someone else? So it might really be quite individualistic based on your, ba- you know, just the bacterium biological you know, material that you are shedding. I I know just I was theorizing, but could it even be something far beyond just this basic chemistry here? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's that's another, you know, uh, unknown variable that's going to come into play in something like this, you know, is what's what's already on the surface, you know, who touched it last and what did they leave behind and how's that going to affect the degradation of your residue that you leave behind? Right. So again, the, the, you know, very promising, especially in the graphs that, that you know uh, from the uh, the Maldi uh, spectra, and you know this these specific compounds and how they're degrading. You know, would have liked to seen have seen some of the variables that the uh, Giro paper had put into this one. You know, here, there's only three people instead of the five, and there's not the variations that the previous one had, which which uh, just to you know, cover real quick included different different surfaces, just a couple, but different surfaces, processing, pressure, you know, weight, temperature, lighting. Uh, so some of those you know didn't didn't come through in this this new one, uh, but hopefully that's something that they can follow up with and that, that testing for these specific uh, TGs or uh, triacylglycerols, you know. Uh, can just incrementally get better as we learn more about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. They they looked at some things that the other paper didn't, and then the other paper had you know quite a bit of I think realistic factors that would come into play. Although I will say for this, I expected when I got to the end of the instrumental data for them to go, and so you can see that this would be you know you know a potential technique, and we need to explore more, give us more money and such. I was <laughs> I was really glad that they actually had a section on forensic considerations because I I see this so lacking sometimes in instrumental papers. They simply show the technique is possible instrumentally and theoretically from a chemical standpoint. But they, because my thought was, yeah, okay, great. Uh, but how do you store this stuff? What have, I mean, how are you going to detect this stuff? I mean, don't you have to apply powder at the scene? And if you powder and lift, I, can you do any of these techniques? Because you can't just have a, a surface and just start throwing it under a Maldi top and hope you hit a fingerprint. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, I mean, there's there are all these real world considerations of how this right. really would be done. And I was really pleased to see that they had thought through that. And I, I give them credit there. So they did apply powder uh, yes. to the to the fingerprints and then, you know, basically were able to preserve them, and then they also stored them under different conditions, as you know, like would happen in the lab. So uh, they were able to show that if, when they lifted them and put them in a sealed container, that it that sealed container effectively stopped the aging process. I mean, within limits for what they looked at. I mean, they didn't look at it for years, but under the the time frame, you know, that they looked at, they saw that it actually had help preserve the evidence so that you could effectively, if you get to a scene within a day or so of the fingerprints being left, uh, this would be a viable technique for showing if they were within a few days deposited or, you know, many days older than that. 
this, that makes me think back to you know a bunch of the stories that um, you know that we heard last week from Simon, right? Right. And I don't know about about you know your lab when you were working back in in BCA, but you know basically all the stories Simon told were you know were fingerprint age was a big component in the case, uh, but they were also all like burglaries, right? Right. How, how how long would it take you to get the evidence for a burglary? How uh, you mean? Well, for us to analyze it, or for it to get to the laboratory in the first for place? for you to analyze it. Well, well okay. yeah, I mean, given our backlog, it could easily have been six months. Right. It, it's you know, I, I I'm very hopeful about these techniques. It's kind of you know, thinking about in real world application again. The 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 cases where you know you where you where the age of a fingerprint is a you know probative question in the case and you can get the evidence to at least begin analyzing it so that it's even ready to go in front of this technique in the i don't know week to less than a month time frame man that's that's a i mean that's a really small number of cases you know yeah, but I mean, I, I, I think that's why the storage was such a huge component because that was exactly my reaction too, Eric, uh, that you'd never get to these things within a day or two. But I think the, the storage thing showed some promise. I expected that they were actually going to put it like in a biology freezer, like a minus 30C freezer or something like that. But I was surprised at just putting it in room temp in a sealed, transparent, or opaque container uh, seemed to stabilize this reaction a bit. That, that surprised me a little bit. But again, they didn't do long-term storage, like like on the order of months or a year for some agencies for burglary crimes. So, and the, the 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 storage, if I'm reading this right, it was just they put it in a sealed container. It didn't need anything else other than that? Correct. Right. Yeah. I, I, okay. They didn't say what kind of container. My mind just read like a Tupperware container, but it wasn't clear what kind of container. And hopefully that that does you know, it looks like here they only did that for three days. So hopefully that's that extends out to you know, more of the lifespan of you know what the forensic lab would be doing with it. But that's that's you know to be determined. But uh, yeah, there is at least a, a suggestion that that uh, that could help with uh, with that consideration. All right, well, Glenn, I think this uh, this does a you know good closeout for our our talk of activity level propositions. Again, this is kind of you know tangentially related a little bit, but still kind of goes to that overall you know that other information, that other component besides identity. You know, determining that from the actual comparison, uh, some of these other questions that uh, that can come up: Why did that print get left there? When was it left there? And um, you know, the difficulty in that, and the importance not to give testimony if if um, if there's no evidence really to support, you know, a conclusion in that regard. Yeah, and you know, the both these papers, you know, show the same concept that theoretically there there is something here. There's there's something to this idea of degradation. Of of, of course, and it's it's why people look at a fingerprint and think it it looks degraded. I mean, because there is actual degradation that's occurring. But at what rate and how to measure that and how much starting material and what the conditions were and what the surface was and what the donor, specifics of the donor, possibly gender, even related effects, 
I mean, you know, what contaminants are on one person's ham versus another that could either expedite or accelerate the process versus retard the process. I mean, all these things in the real world make us very, very complicated. And even, you know, the handful of papers that show theoretically it might be possible, they all kind of concede, yeah, but in the real world, we don't know how, how effective this really will be. And and we're not there. So as you say, until we're there, I, I, you know, going back to our first episode on this, you gotta, you, you can't rely on your visual examination to make statements about this. You know, I want to go even one step further, and this is kind of related to an email that we got here recently. But if you're asked in court if a if the position of the fingerprint is is consistent with someone, you know breaking into the the back door of the house or if the the condition of the print the look of the print is consistent with it being left uh you know the same day that the you know earlier in the day from when the print was lifted think carefully about how you're going to answer those questions and um i mean you do have to give some sort of answer so you may want to consider saying something like yes but it's also consistent with you know, being left in other conditions and kind of go into that depending on how the question is framed. Glenn, how would you answer a question like that? Is, is this print, you know, consistent with someone breaking into the, uh, the backsliding door of the, uh, the house? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say, look, I, I would immediately, as soon as the question came up, I'd say, all right, well, first of all, you've used the word consistent in that question. And so I need to clarify that, what, you're, what it sounds like you're asking me is, if a person broke in, would I expect to find the fingerprint in this position and in this orientation? And the answer to that is, I can't tell you because I'd also have to equally consider the evidence of if the person did not break in, would I expect to find the fingerprint in this position or that? Because as the way you've asked me the question, counselor, it could be consistent, quote unquote, with both of these scenarios. I simply don't have any data, any information that I could answer that either way. There you go. And I might even, depending on how big of a jerk he is, like if if he if we <laughs> if we discuss this pre-trial and I told him don't ask this, I might right. even come back to, and it would be inappropriate for me to make any comment and misleading to make any comment either way. That's that's very good. I like that answer. Uh, and yes, that's much more difficult than just saying, yeah, totally, <laughs> yeah, but. Right. You know, I think that is a much more fair representation of the evidence and and very much more appropriate. So, just to kind of wrap this whole thing up with a with a a testimony uh example, uh I, I think might may help in kind of wrapping up that discussion. So, Yeah, I I agree. And I and I think over the next uh, you know, few months or so, Eric, uh, if there's things that come up, I'll, I'll have to keep my eye open for question activity level questions and depositions or court or such. And then if they come up or if listeners have emails or scenarios yeah. they want to run past us, we can certainly bring them up from time to time. I, I keep getting feedback from people saying they, they've enjoyed hearing about activity level. They don't get as much. Although one listener did mention to me uh, that he he wanted to note 
that he believes that there are classes out there. I think I made a comment way back saying uh, you just don't usually see this, especially in the United States. You don't see this kind of training on activity level. And he argued that while it might not be formally declared activity level, you do get such kind of training from Alice White's uh, uh, analysis of distortion because you're looking at the activity, how it's deposited. True. And, and in John Black's simultaneous impressions class, that's an activity level thing about simult- simultaneous deposition. Uh, and, I, and I thought those were two good points. So while both instructors don't go through the formal application and formal reporting of activity level, and that's what we've been talking about, the formal stating your propositions, right. considering the evidence under both propositions, formally reporting on it, they do talk about activity level and they do show activity level consequences, but it's not in the formal a formal structured uh, proposition mode. And, and especially for Alice's class with the distortion, the, the value that I've always gotten out of that, just me personally, was identifying the the aspects of what these different distortions look like so that I can, in my brain, go, ah, there's distortion. Now be extra careful before I say, like, exclusion. That's crazy, man. That is exactly how I say it in my class as well. Verbatim, except for, and now be careful before exclusion. I just I just say, and now that's be cautious. That's what caut- I just said. Well, no, that's what you say. I don't say that, but right. I, I say, and now be cautious about selecting features in that area. Right, right. So with the, the, the kind of the concept overall is A, that's the mistake that we make all the damn time. And B, when there's distortion, I think that's that kind of distortion can make cor- uh, correspondence or mated prints look non-mated. So that that's kind of the, the yeah. danger there. So, sure. sure. Um, anyway, a couple things coming up. I actually want to mention conferences. Uh, I'm going to be at the the California State Division conference coming up in May. So if you are in the Southern California area or you just want to make a visit to Palm Springs, definitely want to encourage you guys to look up their their conference and you can just do a search for California State Division IAI and get all the details there. Uh, they got great a, a great group of speakers coming and uh, they always put on a good show every year. I think I'm going to be at that too. So we'll have oh, you to... are? Good. Good. Yeah, at least for the second half of the week. Out in the out in the middle of nowhere in mm. Palm Springs. <laughs> As Palm Springs, I've never actually. I don't think I've ever even stopped in Palm Springs. It's just something I pass by every time I go to L.A. Since I was a kid, you know, going back and forth between Phoenix and L.A. Oh, I, I've I've been there. It's it's, it's actually have? it's wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. actually it's it's a, it's a nice little town. Nice little little okay spot in the in the desert. Got it. And uh, but what about you, Glenn? Anything else you have coming up? Yeah, if uh, people are interested, go to ronsmithandassociates.com, putting on some classes. In fact, we are going to be adding a new one here on the practical answers to challenging questions in the courtroom. There won't be too many slots available, but it'll be in the uh, Southern California, San Diego area. That's going to be in June. And then we also have places in uh, – cla- oh, sorry. There's also classes being held uh, for Advanced ACEV. That'll be in April 20 through 24th. That's in Jersey. And then they also have two classes with John Black. That is the Exclusion and Sufficiency class. That's in April and also in May. That's in Colorado Springs as well as I think 
West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, go to ronsmithandassociates.com to look up those classes and others. All right. And with that, we'll close on out. If you need a copy of any of these papers uh, or if you have any other questions for us, go ahead and send us an email, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, at DoubleLoopPod. Uh, our website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com, where we've got some merchandise set up. We've got a few people making some orders. So thank you uh, for everyone who's uh, ordered T-shirts and mugs and other stuff from, uh, from our site. The uh, opinions expressed are those of the speaker and not of anyone else. And with that, talk to you guys later. Bye, everybody. Have a good one.